What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidya Tagawal, and let's get started. Today, in this episode 93, I'm speaking with Kelly Godfrey. Learn about her sunrise in London alongside three brothers and her dad who spent his career in the tech industry working at IBM and mum being the chief family officer having four kids in the span of six years. Kudos to her. I asked Kelly about the inside story of her career success and what it means to succeed in marketing, specifically her move from agency to in-house marketing, what she did in the first five years of her career, which allowed her to become marketing director at Ancestry.com, how to succeed in the first three months of various leadership roles and moving from the UK to Australia. Kelly also shares her candid experience taking a sabbatical in 2018 after having spent close to a decade at Ancestry rising up to country manager for Australia and New Zealand, and then how she returned to work post a time away. And we cover some interesting aspects of StockX, a leading marketplace in Tech Unicorn, where Kelly is the general manager of AMZ. It's time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Kelly Godfrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Vadeep. Why don't we start with some fun facts to set the scene? What was your first job and what do you do now? So first job, I've, I've always really uh, been a worker. So I've actually had jobs since I was, you know, had a paper round age 12 and, you know, various part-time, part-time roles. But I think my first proper career job was um, agency side. I worked for a digital marketing agency in, in Brighton in the UK on the South Coast. Um, and I'm now a general manager for Australia, New Zealand at StockX, which is an online marketplace. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about StockX. There might be listeners who may not be as familiar, so we'll cover that in a, in a segment shortly. Kelly, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. I wonder, is there a high flyer in your life that you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? Oh, what a great question. Um, look, I think there's I think there's a lot of high flyers who are sort of at that mid-range in their careers and and really I, I see such talent. I love nurturing talent. Um and uh, you know, you see people kind of like managerial level that you just think, wow, you would be an incredible um, you know, CEO or CMO. Um, you know, one of whom's in my team right now. I think he's he's fantastic, multi-talented marketer, and um, so yeah. Look, I've uh, I've I've worked with many high flyers in my time. Some at the top of companies, and some sort of leading from the middle, as it were. Let's let's zoom out and start with your sunrise. You mentioned growing up in the UK. Tell us more about that. Like, what what are your memories of the environment you grew up in and the influence of family? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm one of uh, four kids and uh, the only girl. So I have three brothers, and you know, had a really really supportive parents who pretty much always uh, told me I could 
do anything I wanted and be anything I wanted. And, uh, you know, it wasn't an issue that I was a girl. I was just Kelly, you know. So uh, growing up mm. in that environment was awesome. And, and my dad's um, always worked essentially sort of business development, kind of marketing roles throughout his career for technology companies, starting out in the 60s at IBM, where he did 22 years. So, um, wow. and actually myself and all three of my brothers all work in, in sort of some sort of version of technology industry. So uh, I guess you could say we're sort of chips off the old block in that respect. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, you know, age 19, after I sort of finished school and college, I, I decided to go off around the world backpacking for a year. So, um, you know, got a very early taste of um, travel and experiences. And I think that kind of gave me the bug for, um, you know, what would later become, you know, wanting to live and work uh, overseas. So really, you know, at quite a young age was, um, you know, really enjoyed meeting new people and, and seeing new places and uh, facing challenges and overcoming them. So um, that definitely formed part of my younger life. And you mentioned your dad working at IBM and, and that was, I assume, your first taste into tech. Can you share your mu- about your mum? What did you, what did your mum do and, and what influence did she have growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because mum had four kids in six years, uh, she wow. <laughs> she wow. uh, she was a stay-at-home mum, which, you know, I think we were really blessed uh, to, to have uh, our, our mum there. And although, you know, potentially difficult for her sort of later in life when we all flew the nest and she was like okay what's my job now but I think a lot of people will um, relate to their mums being like the busiest person they know Um, Mm -hmm. she was on all the school committees and was sort of fundamental in um, you know fundraising for the school which made it a better school and you know still does a lot of charity work to this day and working with the local community so um, and, you know, she's the boss of the house and, uh, you know, she runs HQ and, and, and still does to this day. So she wasn't a career woman uh, as I've sort of evolved to be, but um, mm. very much the heart and uh, organizer and boss of our family. So, um, yeah, and, and my parents are still together. They've been together for 50 years. So, um, you know, Amazing. very, very lucky to grow up in a a loving, mm. if if not slightly chaotic, household. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and uh, I'm still really close with my brothers. Two are still in London. One lives in California. He works in tech as well. Um, so that we're the two that sort of flew away, and um, two of them are still uh, back in London. So yeah, really close. Yeah, the, the title for your mum sounds like the chief family officer. Absolutely. And my mum, my mum was very similar. She she by choice very smart lady but by choice was a stay-at-home mom for me and my younger brother and I think as you get older you appreciate that I think when you when you see mom around you take it for granted and I never really understood what impact she had and now I look back I'm like wow she was actually she shaped me so well and played such a big role one thing I love touching on is is sort of influences and you mentioned family when you think back to your early life your first 15 years or so were there any other influences outside of your family that you feel shaped some of your thinking and, and view of the world? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, we were all kind of quite sporty as kids and you can imagine, you know, the taxi service of mum as well as <laughs> driving everyone here to there. But and, and three brothers, yeah. And three brothers, yeah. So um, I was a gymnast at an early age and and being part of the sort of community and the, the, the sort of team spirit of that gymnastics club from 
age seven to 14, uh, you know, I used to train sort of four times a week and it was all, um, you know, a, a huge amount of fun, but also a serious thing to be part of this team um, and to collaborate with uh, all the other gymnasts. And I was a, an acrobat. So I was the one that was either chucked in the air or standing on someone's shoulders. And, um, you know, it, I think it really helped to build up that sort of trust and collaboration and all of those things as well as sort of organizing and just being part of something that was um outside of family and outside of school so yeah I I, I love that and um yeah although you kind of get a bit broken in the body when you, if you do uh, too much gymnastics but um yeah I really enjoyed the community aspect of it and you mentioned earlier Brighton. I'm, I'm assuming that was close to where you grew up. And, and forgive my geography of the UK. I, I, I know London and I know Manchester. That's that's the extent of my knowledge. Where, where does Brighton sit? Is that a country town or would you call that a city? Because again, back to influences, I've had guests on who've come from the country and they've got a different view in the world. Whereas if you grew up in the city, you see the hustle and bustle and you yeah. tend to almost be more ambitious. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm I'm 100% Londoner, born and bred. You know, first two decades of my life were, were spent in the big city, albeit the suburbs. Uh, I'm from a place called Chiswick, sort of nestled in the loop of the Thames on the west, sort of between mm. the city and the airport, if you like. Um, but uh, yeah, Brighton is directly south of London on the coast. It's a seaside town. Um but very much uh, over the last couple of decades has a real kind of digital cluster there. So mm. uh, lots of creative digital companies, uh, marketing agencies. And, you know, one of my early jobs was um, a projects coordinator for a kind of um, public run um, agency that supported the digital cluster and did networking events and, and training and coaching and things like that. So um, a really great place, quite sort of, free thinking, uh, a bit lefty and uh, a super fun town as well. I mean, it was first built for the Victorians to uh, come yeah. down from London on the train and have a day out and walk on the pier. So you can kind of picture in your mind, um, you know, the fun that built the town. But um, yeah, absolutely loved it. That was my first experience sort of other than the, the year backpacking of living away from home, albeit only an hour and a half drive back to London. But um yeah, loved the inclusiveness and creativity um, of Brighton. It was it was fantastic. And and if you think back to when you were eighteen and you've got some maturity and some understanding of the world, what was success at that age? Like, what would have? And I know I'm testing testing you here by putting you on the spot, but what was success at that age when you were eighteen? Like, did you have a goal in mind in in life or in your career? Um, so look at 18, I, I probably just finished, um, a levels in the UK. So it would have been around 17, 18. And I, I, at that time didn't want to go to university. I'd kind of had enough of mm. academia and school. And it's not that I didn't love learning. I've always loved learning, but I was ready to work and earn money and, you know, show the world what I had. So, um, I, I think I've always sort of had quite a creative flair, but I couldn't really deny my sort of business brain, which I now know is my kind of business brain, but um, really, you know, sort of wanting to um, work, earn money, be part of a team um, and improve the sort of operations and, and, and growth of whichever company I was working for. Um, but I was very, I feel like, you know, when you're younger, you have that sort of inner power of like, I can change the world. I can be anything. And uh, I really felt that, you know, the world was 
uh, my oyster. Um, so was, you know, quite a force to be reckoned with 18 year old Kelly. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it sounds very similar to a lot of guest story. And I think back to when I was 18, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. And I think I, I often say the people that can like connect their journey in, in dots, looking in hindsight, almost have too good a story. Like that's not always reality, but some people know what they want to do and they go off and do that. And they're very clear and they're intentional in their journey. Uh, I'd love to go into magic moments. This is probably the segment I really enjoy and, and listeners do, because we sort of unpack some of your experiences in, in both life and work. Is there a moment that stands out for you that was sort of painful in the moment, but in hindsight, you're really glad you went through it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, early on, uh, one of them was actually when I graduated and, you know, I was like, right, I've got this degree, I've got this piece of paper, I'm just going to walk into uh, a great job. Um, and actually, it took me quite a few months um, to, to find a job that I just remember thinking, you know, I've been lied to, I thought if I had a degree, I could easily just get into the world of work. And, you know, and I was applying for all these jobs. And, um, that was probably one of the harder times in, in my sort of younger sort of life where, and I'd always worked as well and had jobs, but I wanted this, you know, this dream digital marketing kind of job um, and took, it took many months. And I actually ended up working for an architect sort of as a, sort of a practice manager for about 18 months while I was trying to find that, that ideal job. So that was something that was very difficult for me and just sort of not not being able to show my value um, and that's something that I've always sort of struggled with if, if I'm if I'm not earning and I'm not being put to use then uh, quite quickly I can become you know um, a little bit low about that um, and later in life you know we touched on it before but later in life you know being made redundant was a real I do feel that sometimes women put more per, per, you know put more of their person into their work somehow they're just more emotionally invested um and so you know being made redundant is 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 super hard uh, or having to sort of you know separate from a job or a company that you've worked at for years you know those people you kind of go through a phase of grief and i think that's uh you know that's something that's you know really been um you know made made quite a big impact on me but then you know, really those difficult situations, it's sort of how you deal with it, right? How do you move forward? How do you kind of reframe your situation and see it as an opportunity? And that takes time, um, but it's a very important process to do that. Um, and we have, we all have the power to do that and look at a situation from a different perspective. That's probably one we can touch on as part of Magic Moments because a lot of listeners of this show are either early in life or they're looking to make a change, mm -hmm. whether it's geography or, or company or, or role. And um, my understanding is I think you, you worked for about six or seven years and then you became a director of marketing at Ancestry. And, and some people might say that's quite a quick rise. So clearly you were a high performer and you built some really good relationships. Were there two or three things that you look back now in hindsight that you felt you did in the first five, five years of your career that set you up for that success? Because I think I think back now as well, there's a lot of things that I did, but they weren't conscious things. They were sort of, to your point, I learned them through failure or through mentoring or even my dad, he played a big role because he worked in the business world and he'd give me advice, but I'd never listen to it. I'd be like, dad, why are you telling me that? But now as I get older, I'm like, dad, what you told me actually was so true. It kind of unconsciously stuck in my mind. Yeah. So are there two or three things that you think back in hindsight of the first five years in your career that set you up for future success? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, look, I think I had... 
really some inner confidence and that was again you know like yourself sort of from from my from my parents bit from mm. you know, coming from a really supportive family um and you know I just put my hand up for things um I just said I'll I'll do that uh there was one and actually this was just when I was leaving the agency I worked at in Brighton and I was moving to London for the job at Ancestry um and I happened to answer the phone and it was someone from asos.com you know the big online mm. retailer in the UK and they said oh we want you to come and pitch for a bit of digital business and I I hit up the business development guys and they were all just too busy. And I said, this is ASOS.com. This is going to be one of the biggest <laughs> retailers in, in the UK of the world. Someone should be running this. And now oh, we're just, you know, we've got eight already this week or whatever it was. And I said, okay, I'm going to do it. Um, and mm. I led the pitch and I tore up the, the pitch deck, the one the agency used, and I completely reinvented it. Um, and I think it was five days before I was due to leave the job. I went in with a team led this pitch and won the business for the agency. Wow. Um, and it was really just like, you know, I can, I can do the, anything I can, you know, put my, uh, put myself in that, in the sort of head of who's going to be making the decision on the, you know, the potential client side, what do they want to hear? They want to hear about, uh, how we understand their customers, how we understand their industry. Um, and then all at the, after that, at the end, oh, and by the way, here's a bit about us rather than, you know, at the time agencies would go in, we've got all these clients and we manage all this money and us, us, us. And I was like, no, let's go in and talk about them and what we understand about their customers. Um, and yeah, won the business and said, see you guys, there you go. Here's some new business. I'm off, uh, off to my next job. So I think it's about, um, you know, stepping up, uh, always try and do more. Don't sh shovel work onto other people. Just step up to the plate, um, you know, be in touch with your inner confidence and, you know, understand your value. Fake it till you make it as well sometimes, you know. <laughs> it does work. <laughs> with with authenticity, I think that's important to mention. I think there's a lot of people that try and fake it and they show a different side of them. I think it's... I, I like to believe you still need to show your true self, otherwise people can see through that. So, Absolutely. But, but I do agree with your your overall premise. I think while you were saying that, one thing I thought of is, so I worked in CPG and retail for many years, and I worked with a lot of people from the UK. I, I worked, I've only worked in Australia, but I've worked with a lot of people from the UK. And, and one of the things I noticed in all the roles I was in, particularly senior roles, there'd often be people from the UK in Australia, and I'm sure a lot of your friends are in those roles. And and. People from the UK, have, in my experience, have always been good at relationship building, presentation, and particularly difficult conversations, like whether it's working with the retailers or manufacturers. I don't know if there's something in the water in the UK or not, but <laughs> what, what is it about, like, did you find, is there like the coaching you get early in your career, particularly as you talked about agency and marketing and pitching, and I know agency life can be quite ruthless. Mm. Was that something that you put a lot of focus on in terms of, influencing skills and negotiation and that people building skills yeah absolutely look I, I mean you know relationships are just at the heart of everything you know companies when you strip everything back it's a collection of people right um and so building social capital is incredibly important wherever you work you know get to know people a bit uh you know understand their life under you know find empathy and um their sort of challenges and things that they're dealing with um, within their teams and in their personal lives. Um, so, yeah, I really believe, believe that relationship building is at the heart of everything. 
um, with English people or Brit Brits. Um, look, I think there is um, a sort of the level of um, professional, you know, is is kind of being articulate. It's um, being uh, quite direct, but um, also not being rude. You know, you, you, you mm. rarely will have a business meeting in the UK where people are just openly rude or rough road over, you know, just talking over each other and things like that. And I've worked a lot of my career for um, American companies, but also global global companies that have, you know, started out in the US and, and the different cultures uh, in different markets is really, you know, the nuances is, is, is incredibly important to understand, um, you know, how people in those countries do business, how they communicate. Um, but certainly as a, as a Brit, look, I think it's important to be direct in business. You know, you can't sort of stand on eggshells because you're afraid to hurt someone's feelings. Like if it's a business issue, it shouldn't be taken personally. It should be, uh, you should be able to discuss it with, you know, without emotion and just kind of, you know, really get to it and, and face that conflict. You know, yeah. of course, some people hate dealing with conflict and that's, you know, and I totally understand that it's not comfortable, but um, if it's to do with a business topic, you know, go with an open mind and put your, you know, put your thoughts forward and listen, you know, listening is so important. Listen to other people. If someone's quiet in the corner, you say, hey, you know, what's your thoughts on this? Um, you know, make sure the introverts get their get their say as well. Um, because, yeah, it's it's incredibly important to sort of, if people feel heard and uh, able to collaborate, that's when you can actually sort of, you know, form bonds and actually co-create a solution to a business problem. So, yeah, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no, as you said earlier, there's no right or wrong manual per se. And, and I must say that's my experience, the Brits that I worked with. I'm sure there's a lot of Brits that aren't as smooth and and maybe there's other nationalities. So I don't want to annoy any of the listeners who are from other countries. <laughs> they, feel, they feel I'm pinpointing one type of, of demographic. You mentioned earlier about moving from agency to sort of in-house marketing. And I think you did that from eye crossing to, to ancestry. Talk about that, like particularly, I think I've done some marketing work in my career and I've worked with agencies. I haven't worked in an agency, but I've worked with agencies and I I understand the skill set when you go from an agency to in-house marketing can be quite different, particularly as marketing has become more commercial. When you're in-house, you're responsible for a certain aspect of the P&L work. When you're an agency, you're often a consultant and you're presenting and, and that's the extent of your involvement. And if something goes wrong, you kind of roll your hands and it's to the, to the in-house client that's paying for it. Talk to that in terms of were there any skills that you had to develop when you went from agency land to in-house marketing and particularly going to tech? I think you did a lot of digital marketing Yeah, in the, in the early 2000s, early 2010s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's completely different, um, but I absolutely loved it. And the reason I loved it is because I truly understood um, for the first time, the sort of competing priorities of a business, you know, when you're agency side, you're like, I don't understand why they don't just do this. You know, we've, mm. they're paying us to, you know, tell them what to do. And we've told them that they haven't done it. Um, and really when you go, when you go in house sort of client side, you're like, oh, okay. Because there's all these other really important things and everyone's trying to, you know, get their project or their initiative prioritized. Um, so you really kind of get under the, uh, you know, under the hood of the of a business and, and and truly understand how the different departments work together, how, you know, the different sort of organizational structures can impact 
decision making um, and uh, you know you, you, you truly get a sort of clearer picture of you know the prioritization of that business um, so um, in terms of skills uh, you know things move a little bit more slowly <laughs> when you're mm. uh, client side for the reasons I've just mentioned so um, you know a bit of frustration uh, around sort of why I couldn't you know quickly quickly like do this do this uh, so I had to sort of slow down more and really kind of um, get that bigger picture viewpoint which I think is one of the things that um, I now sort of excel at is is seeing the bigger picture um, and simplifying things as well. So, um, but look, I, I loved it. I was able to go into Ancestry very quickly, identify, you know, some very low hanging fruit uh, in the digital marketing activities that they were doing. And uh, within a year, just was able to kind of make some, a few, a few changes that just absolutely blew the performance out of the water and I was the golden child you know <laughs> for the first year or two there because they were like wow you know all this growth from digital and it's because I just understood it um so I certainly for any young listeners out there at the beginning of their career agency side is a fantastic way to start you build an incredible network you get to work with all different companies uh, and you know industries um and you know you just learn so much so quickly and you can then take that into um a sort of client's organization and really you know come armed with this sort of wealth of knowledge and experience and network which only serves you well talk talk about the ancestry from a marketing perspective i think people uh, including me look at ancestry and they go family history genetics what what can you actually market and promote? And, and you obviously there for almost 10 years. So there clearly was a need for marketing and then you excelled at it. But can you give us one or two examples of maybe the low hanging fruit you mentioned that you came in and you could demonstrate from a marketing perspective? Like what does ancestry marketing mean? What does an- marketing in a company like ancestry mean? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, people, I don't know, you don't often think about sort of ancestry in terms of, you know, a sort of big consumer tech kind of behemoth. Um, but actually, if you think about what's behind, um, you know, behind family history and, uh, you know, doing the DNA test is that is this very human thing at the center of all of us, which is, who am I? You know, where did I come from? Like, how did I become who I am? Um, and at some point in our lives, that sort of, you know, those questions really kind of come tickling, uh, tickling on, on, on our ears. And we're like, OK, I actually want to discover what makes me me. Um, and, you know, the beauty of um, the ancestry business is that this is human stories. And who isn't interested mm. in human stories? It's family. Um, it's, you know, what came before you, you know, you're unique in this world. Um, and actually something they did really, really uh that was really clever was going to genetics, right? Because family history research is one thing, you know, you're actually having to look through old documents and build your tree and it's quite a sort of academic process. Whereas uh, the DNA test, you just spin the test tube and send it off. And this, you know, extremely smart science tells you exactly the regions in the world where your, your DNA, your, you know, your unique human marker has, has traveled throughout the past sort of hundreds of years. So, um, just in a very easy way, it tells you something about who we are um, and our culture. And it also really breaks down those kind of, um, you know, things that we think about in terms of identity, race and you know, or ethnicity um, and nationality and all of those things. So it's an mm. incredibly um, powerful 
human narrative that's behind uh, that business, which made it an absolute dream to be a marketer uh, for. Because, you know, for TV ads, we just put a a thing out on our Facebook page, like who's got a really cool story to tell about, you know, Mm. the Anzacs or about uh, immigration into Australia or something. And you just get all these people like, well, this happened, you know, so then we would just use our customers in our TV ads, for example, and to make um, incredible uh, online content based on real people's stories. It was it was a, a bit of a dream for a marketer. Um, and then look on the on the analytical side, it's essentially a SaaS business, right? It's, mm. um, it's a subscription business and those businesses are just, uh, you know, incredibly stable and easy to easy to forecast and um, based on unit economics. Uh, so once you understand the exact cost to acquire a new customer and once you understand the lifetime value of that customer, then, you know, you can essentially really forecast out, uh, you know, what you're going to do from year to year, um, what campaigns you're going to do to drive new, you know, new members. Um, And yeah, it was a a very sort of uh, well-run business within the kind of SaaS model, consumer SaaS company model. Um, And at the heart of it was these human stories. So that's why I stayed Mm. there for so long. (laughs) It sounds like to me while you're saying that, like, almost discovery of the product and the platform is probably where your you and your team's role came in. Is that a fair, fair assumption? Yeah, look, I think with, uh, you know, consumer tech, marketing is essentially, you know, you bring the horse to water and then, you mm. know, the product teams and the customer experience teams are there to, you know, make the horse drink, right? You have to have a yeah. really engaging um, customer experience. You have to have, you know, enable people to, be delighted really quite quickly and discover new things really quite quickly and and sort of catch them whilst they're on your site. So I've always had, um, yeah, like a a lot of interest in product experiences and customer experiences on, you know, platform-based consumer technology. And uh, for a company to succeed, uh, products or customer experience teams have to work really hand in hand with, with marketing. Um, you know, we're bringing people in and here's what they do, you know. So, um, yeah, companies that get that get that collaboration right uh, will find growth. Yeah, and that probably reminds me of something we can maybe cover on later on is the tension between marketing and product teams and engineering teams because everyone feels they are the entry point for the consumer. But often, like you said, it does come from marketing or business development, but business development need the brand to get the customer or even a trial out of it. But we'll touch on that shortly. Go back to magic moments. Something happened at the end of 2012-13 that was kind of threefold in a way. You moved countries, you you got promoted into a new role and, and you sort of went into general management or into a director role where you obviously had more oversight. Before I get to that, what back to what I said earlier, like how you set yourself up for success, were there any things you did at like in your own control, obviously a lot of it is timing and, and sponsors and, and, and um, luck, one could say, but was there anything in your control you did in the three years you were in that digital marketing role that you felt set you up for having a good shot at the director of marketing role in Australia? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, essentially my first goal was to demonstrate value. Right. And, yeah. and having come from agency side, it's sort of ROI. Right. So I was like, mm. if I can, you know, show that I can grow this, these digital channels, the digital part of the marketing uh, organization, 
then, um, you know, they're going to, you know, I'm going to need a team. And so I was like, all right, I want to, I want someone who's going to cover social media and I want someone who's going to cover sort of partnerships and affiliates. Um, and, you know, once I demonstrated the value and I'm like, look how much more we could do, they're like, okay, Kelly, you know, you can hire some people. So I started to build the team. Um, at that time, um, I wasn't across offline channels, so TV and stuff. That only happened when I was transferred uh, down to Australia with Ancestry. But, um, you know, I, I knew that if I could, sh- you know, show the value I was generating for the business and, and how much more we could do and model that out, um, that they would support me in, in you know, um, getting a team, nurturing talent. Um, and we also, I remember in those early days of Ancestry, I did my first sort of business trip to San Francisco and I was... Mm you know, in love. I was like, here's this, you know, the heart of uh, technology and innovation, um, free thinking and sort of endless possibilities, um, you know, Silicon Valley. And I was just blown away by that. And I I actually really, you know, I really wanted to go and work in San Francisco. And I said that to my boss at the time. I said, I want to be there. That's where, you know, that's I, I've been there now and and I know that's where I want to be. And And I actually interviewed for a couple of roles uh, in in the product team, actually, um, in, in mm. Ancestry in San Francisco office and didn't get selected because, funnily enough, I didn't have any product <laughs> management experience. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I really wanted to live and work abroad. And once I'd kind of sown that seed uh, to, you know, my, my bosses at the company, then within six weeks, I was in Sydney. Um, wow. So I, I do feel like there's some you know, there's something in that sort of really, if you really want something and you you can kind of manifest it in some way. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough that an opportunity came up in the Sydney office and I was able to just move quite quickly. Um, But I I felt that I really made that happen for myself. And I knew that moving to a smaller team um, and a smaller market than the UK for the business, um, but mm. I would be potentially have the opportunity to be a kind of bigger fish in a smaller pond, and actually that's that's what happened to me in my career, and, mm. and it was it worked really well for me because within a year, you know, the first year it was only supposed to be one year. <laughs> it always is, right? It always, it always is, starts. right? It's everyone's story. Um, but yeah, the the first year I was sort of across all of marketing, and then you know. Um, ancestry wanted me to stay and I really wanted to stay I was living in Bondi Mm. Beach and you know (laughs) in the sunshine and um, you know swimming in the ocean and uh, yeah then you know they they made me marketing director so and it was one of my goals I was like you know by the time I'm 35 I want to be a director and (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to do it but again you know sort of having these goals and uh, really just you know making those making those goals known right it's really important mm. that you actually you know if you're working hard and you're talented and you actually just say to people this is what i want how do i get there um or you know are you supportive of that and make it known because once you said it you know it's out there in the mm. world um and I, I feel like your likelihood of getting it is 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 increases I completely agree. And it probably goes back to your point around your childhood, like that personality, I think. And I worked, as you would have as well, worked with a lot of introverts and often introverts look at building relationships as something that's a second job they need to do. But especially in a big company, if people don't know who you are and what you've done, your work sometimes doesn't get recognized. I think for listeners, if they're in that position, absolutely, I learned that the hard way that 
you do need to kind of promote yourself in in the right way sometimes and and do those coffee catch-ups and get your name out there and tell the seniors what projects you're working on because otherwise you just sometimes wait the train keeps going and you're like why is the train not stopping for me yeah. and sometimes it's because the sign's not big enough so the train didn't see you so so true talk, let's talk about moving to australia because i think something i'm always fascinated by is how do you get accustomed to not just a new culture but a new team and you're in a leadership role with line management and, and perhaps even PL ownership and, and now you've moved roles since then as well and, and we'll talk about sort of going from marketing into more broader general management in a second but we just talk on marketing for a second what what kind of things do you do when you go into a role in the first three months because i'm i'm really fascinated by this because i think the best people that's what separates them like how do they lay the foundations when it comes to relationships asking the right questions mm-hmm doing a restructure of the team perhaps are there three or four things you've learned that you now do when you go into a new role for the first time yeah look i think it's it's extremely good idea to you know to sort of have a plan when you when you first start a a new a new job and not just for senior roles leadership roles but at any point um and you know there's a few sort of tips um, and one is that don't sort of walk in bossing people around and saying, mm. well, at my old company, we used to do this, <laughs> my old company, because everyone's like, well, who cares? You know, this is, our, this is a new company. And um, mm. so you have to really be quite sensitive to that. And, and I think the, the, the best advice for the first 30 days is just be a sponge, <laughs> you know, mm. be a human sponge um, and uh, have catch ups with different people and just ask questions and listen to what they say, make lots of notes uh, on your observations, on the kind of sentiment that you're hearing. Um, and really, uh, you can sort of understand more, you know, there's sort of the organizational structures, but there's also power dynamics and politics in any company. Um, and it's just really important for that first few weeks to really just have lots of conversation, do you know active listening tour of all of the sort of stakeholders and people that you'll be um, partnering with and other other teams but of course your own team um, and really just you know and make it clear that that's what you're doing as well so they don't think oh we've hired someone who just doesn't talk just say you know for the first month I'm just want to I just want to sponge in everything and people immediately will be sort of um, you know they'll like that because they want to talk about their, their life and their, you know, their career and their job and and the things they need. Um, So certainly the first 30 days active listening. Um, I think the next, the next month is really about sort of starting to formulate a plan based around, you know, where are the sort of low hanging fruit, where's the gaps, um, you know, what are the things, you know, based on your experience, especially when you get further in your career, essentially you know you're being hired for what's in your mind you know is is what is the experience and um you know strategic thought that you can bring to that role so it's really about looking for the gaps low-hanging fruit starting to formulate plans and then you know the third month is really sort of communicating you know refining and communicating those plans and by you know by sort of 90 100 days you should be presenting those plans to you know, leadership uh, and to your teams. Um, And, you know, the other thing as well is like in that sort of second month is to do this sort of collaboration, co-creation process with your team. So if you are, if you have a team or your peers is actually say, you know, I really want to do like a workshop um, and I want everyone to, you know, um, really sort of 
put in their ideas and then we'll vote on the best ideas or you know there's very sort of simple kind of design thinking um, workshop formats and things like that that you can do and then you know lo and behold those people feel like they have you know or they have actually co-created um you know the priorities and what needs to change and you know what's working well and what's not working well and and what should you know um so therefore you know those people are invested in those changes they've co-created it with you um and then you know presenting it to to leadership and getting their buy-in and then you start implementing you know but don't start making changes within those first three months you you haven't had Mm. enough time you're going to upset people, you're going to upset, you know, the apple car. And, um, you know, it's really about sort of gentle easing in learning um, and then sort of building a plan and then you start acting on it. Mm. Yeah, such good points. I'm conscious that I've spent a lot of the magic moments on your work and we haven't spoken about your kind of life per se. And, and I, I'm a big believer in work's only one part of life and there's so many things. So we fast forward a bit for listeners who are keen on the story then you went into country manager role and I want to ask you questions about each role because we can be here for hours but you went into that role and you were in that role for four years but then you took some time off yeah and you alluded to it earlier we took a sabbatical and you did some really cool things in the sabbatical like it wasn't a sabbatical watching Netflix and having having kind of Uber Eats every night it was like really traveling and you immersed yourself and you did some executive um, program at Stanford was there did it connect back to like you said earlier you were this ambitious person and you were always on this kind of path to get to more like did you because I feel I've been through that as well where you get to a point and you're like yeah I've achieved what I want not achieved but I kind of I still need more fulfillment and I want to experience life can you take us inside that period in 2018 when you because one could say you were at the top of the mountain you're doing such great things you probably had recruiters knocking on your door all the time going here's another opportunity Kelly do you want this you want to go back to the UK go to the US how did you decide to put all that away and go, no, I'm going to take a break? Yeah, great. It's a great question. And what a year <laughs> it was for me, 2018. So, you know, started out a bit bumpy in terms of, you know, when I left Ancestry and had that sort of re- a bit of an identity crisis. I was like, well, who am I if I'm not, you know, the mm. GM at Ancestry in Australia? Like, you know, I was so entrenched in that sort of part of my identity and and, and in the job and had, you know, really sort of, my whole life been focused around career and work and and that had sort of led me to different things and where I lived and everything else. And I was like, you know what, I just need a, I want a time out. I want to, um, uh, you know, have some different experiences and really kind of take some time to think about what I want to do next. Um, and the other thing was, I just, I'd got a bit comfortable, you know, four years is a long time doing one job. And I was sort of like, I needed to just shake things up, you know, shake everything up yeah. uh, within myself. I'd been, you know, I've been very lucky to have this great job and flown around the world and had all this opportunity, but I was like, I'm too comfortable. And so I was like, right, how can I put myself outside my comfort zone in as many ways possible? Right. So I kind of did a bit of a, you know, mind, body, soul. And I was like, I want to do something for my mind and then I want to do something that's like physically challenging and then I want to do something kind of spiritual sort of thing so the three things I did and you touched on one was I was lucky enough to get into the Stanford executive program which is essentially a six-week residential course that when the MBAs at Stanford leave for summer this comes in um, Mm. which was just the most incredible experiences over 200 leaders from around the world Um, and it's a bit like a kind of fire hose of an MBA (laughs) 
is, is the best way to uh, describe it. But, you know, ultimately you're just meeting just these most incredible, uh, successful people from all over the world. Um, and, you know, definitely some imposter syndrome felt by me uh, there. I was like, wow, why, how am I here with all these incredible people? Um, but just, you know, anyone who's considering doing ex executive education, my advice is do it. Don't even think, do it. Um, the value you get, not just from what you learn, but from who you meet is just, you know, it will pay dividends for the rest of your career. Um, and then next up, I went to Burning Man uh, in the Nevada yeah. desert, which was one of the things on my bucket list and, you know, just kind of decorated my, my bicycle and cycled around the desert and um, <laughs> ended up rescuing lots of people that were lost after dust storms and made my way home for them. I don't know why I'm always someone who knows how to get somewhere. So um, had that for a week. And then, um, and then later in the year, I went to Nepal and did a motorbike, <laughs> motorcycle uh, trip around the Himalayas for two weeks, um, which um, it, it was an organized kind of thing. So it wasn't like I was, you know, with a map and a, you know, a heart full of hope. I, it was an organized tour, but there was 18 riders and I was the only female. I'd only been riding a mm. motorbike for about 18 months at that point. I remember emailing the organizer saying, am I going to be okay? He's like, yeah, you'll be fine. And if I'd known, you know, before what I knew <laughs> once I was setting out and Kathmandu uh, in the early hours of that morning, I would never have done it. But, you know, just one of the most sort of uh, extraordinary and, you know, terrifying and challenging and exciting um, and very physically enduring things I've ever done. And, um, you know, moments of just sort of utter frustration and falling off the bike in a ditch again and just screaming like screaming to the Himalayas like this is what you're here for Kelly this is why you're here and get yourself up and get back on that bike and um yeah look it was it was an incredible year and I you know spent a good chunk of time back in London with family and friends as well and a couple of weddings and you know it was just just such a nourishing uh year that sabbatical and i again if you can you know obviously it's it costs money and i had luck enough to you know be able to do it but um it was just yeah uh, the most incredible experience i think if you get an, an opportunity and i use that word uh intentionally if you get the opportunity mm. um of you know uh, a sabbatical then make sure that you use it to the max like do something you'd never normally do you know, push yourself outside your comfort zone. That's how we grow, you know? And I think to go from that sort of into the sort of pandemic years where we just, our comfort zone mm. shrank right back down to our actual home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, And now we're sort of, you know, learning to kind of stretch out again. And uh, mm. it, that's a slow process as well. But look, I think, yeah, that's the way to grow in every way of life and just really experience new things is just push yourself to do it. Think of something wild and just do it. On your point with opportunity, I, I agree, and and I think friends or guests who've been on the on the show, they talk about. I think the one of the reasons some of the people don't take that opportunity that you took because it can be brave is they're fearful of losing their connection to industry or their network or that kind of body armor that you carry through your title or salary, and you get away from that. So. I'd love to understand your thinking when you were coming towards the end of that sabbatical. Did you think about going, okay, I worked at Ancestry. You probably kept in touch with some of your colleagues going back there or 
because I think you did make some different moves and you were a founder for a period of time yeah. and, and we'll talk about your current role, but what was your thought process then? Because I think that's the fear. I haven't taken a year like you have, but a lot of people that have thought about it but haven't done it is because they're fearful. It's the same with even with an MBA. Like often the advice is, yes, it's useful for you in the future, but you might be disconnected for a year because you're away from industry and you're not in the in the know and, and maybe a position comes up while you're away and you miss out on that. It clearly sounds like you, you didn't that didn't bother you, and which is great. But how did you think about life kind of coming out of the sabbatical yeah. now in hindsight? Sure. Look, um, it, it, it did bother me and I was terrified. Okay. <laughs> I was terrified about it. And, you know, probably six, seven months into my year, I was already starting to kind of think, okay, I need to, you know, get back because mm. it can take a long time, especially when you're kind of more senior level. It can take months mm. uh, to, to find the right gig. And, um, look, it did, it, it did really worry me and it is scary, but I think, uh, in the same way that moving to a new country, you know, I had no network here when I moved from the UK to Australia and had to build all that up again. Um, but I think just having, um, a belief, you know, in yourself, in your experience, in your network is, is really important and, you know, put in, put in the work, put in the effort, um, you know reconnect with all of those people in your network that you maybe you haven't spoken to in a while go for coffees um you know just again it's kind of that sort of listening and and opportunities started to emerge you know for me to just consult and I was doing some consulting and uh you know this is this is how you know my sort of uh consulting business emerged was just through one of these coffee catch-ups um and then you know was lucky enough to be introduced to the founders of Go One, which is a big, you know, ed tech mm-hmm. company, uh, one of uh, Australia's darling unicorns, double unicorns. Um, and, yep. you know, they were looking for some support with sort of marketing and business growth. And, you know, that led to a sort of six, six, seven month stint with those guys. And then, you know, just things just start to, you know, it, but it's like that whole pipeline, right? It's a sales pipeline. It's a good to think about your career in the same way is just making sure that, uh, if you are coming back into the world of work, that you're just having these coffee catch-ups, like give yourself a target. I need to do three a week, um, whether it's a phone call or a, a coffee or you go for a walk um, and just, you know, make, just put the word out there that, you know, you're you're coming back to market and available for hire. And I think if you just, you know, put the work in, something will come up. Um, and that's that's essentially, you know, what happened with me and, consulted with a kind of network I had a lot of you know people I'd worked with before who were super talented who were freelancing and I kind of pulled us all together and and did a few jobs um and then this StockX opportunity came up um so yeah Mm. I I think it it's scary but it's worth it uh to take that sabbatical Mm. and have a time out this is your second role as a country GM for a global tech unicorn what have you learned about growth in new markets sure um Look, I think this is going to sound like super obvious, but it's it, it the number one thing is really about localization, right? It's not just mm. um, your marketing and messaging, although that's set, certainly a good place to start is making sure that you're communicating with your customers in, in a relevant way, right? So um, marketing and messaging, but also, you know, the actual product experience, if you're a, if it's a technology company, it's making sure you've got you know, local currency and, you know, for the case of uh, Australia with US companies, making sure that you're not sending out summer 
summer vibes emails in the middle of winter, mm. you know, just these like simple little things. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, with localization, look, I'm a big fan of um, local teams uh, for global businesses and giving them autonomy. That's how I've been able to find success for myself and my teams um, is, you know, empower people uh, to do, you know, give them targets and give them some autonomy and let them, you know, see, see what they can come up with rather than you have to do everything this exact way in this exact way. Um, because, you know, people want to be able to prove themselves and, and show value and, and the value in their local knowledge. So uh, autonomy for local teams, uh, ensuring your sort of brand and creative and everything is is localized. Um, yeah, they're probably two, two of the main things and just really understanding as well uh, the customer and um, any differences there uh, and the sort of, you know, in terms of consumer tech, what's the value of their customer? How does that differ? Mm. Uh, what are the local trends? What are competitive, uh, you know, the competitive landscape? All of those things can be wildly different. Um, you know, StockX operate globally. And um, if you look at our markets in Korea and Japan and, and greater China, we have some competitors in those markets, which just so far do not exist uh, in the US to the US audience. But wow, are they active, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, and after the the share of share of wallet, so it's yeah, really just understanding that market, um, having a local team there, and making sure that the knowledge uh, feeds back to the mothership, as it were. Yeah, yeah, I think the, this point is so transferable as well. Like the, if the listeners who aren't particularly in the tech space, like I think back to my experience in CPG retail, it was exactly the same. Like when I worked at companies like Procter and Gamble or Nestle the regional office in Singapore and they'd send you a directive, but they're not, they don't have the pulse of the market. Mm-hmm. And and then can the local team take that global asset and convert or translate it into a local market to your mm-hmm. point, that localization strategy with understanding the consumer, even the subtle differences, whether it's pricing or it's mm-hmm. the way it's packaged. And I think particularly Asia is very shiny and very kind of in your face sometimes, whereas Australia is more about the quality and, and at least in, in, in consumer packaged goods, it's more a premium market and it's not as much about volume, but more price. So I think absolutely those points are really true. On, on the point of StockX, uh, it's a huge company, but if in case there's some listeners who might not be as familiar with StockX, what's it like working at a company that sells the hottest products on the planet? Like you're working, I know you work with a lot of creators, you've got some really cool and funky things that you've been doing over the years. What's that been like to work in, like having a kind of pulse on culture? Yeah, look, it's 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 absolutely fascinating, honestly, to see the sort of real life live data and trends behind, you know, what people are buying and consuming and investing in, because there's this whole, you know, alternate asset investment element to StockX where people will buy mm. something knowing that it's going to accrue value over time and then sell it a year down the line. Um but yeah, really kind of having access to those trends and those data and, and then you can kind of trace it back to the brand or the artist, musician, you know, who has kind of created that hype and seeing how that actually translates into buying behavior um, or investing behavior is 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 really fascinating. And also seeing how that kind of differs between the different markets and what Japanese customers are buying versus, you know, Mexican uh, customers and, you know, having that sort of global uh, data and, and what's really uh, hot right now is, is, is really fascinating. And our, our internal 
um, you know, economists and, and uh, communications teams put out these monthly reports on, on these things. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So um, I love it. And, and StockX are really good about, um, you know, thinking ahead towards what, the, especially with the investing part of it, you know, we're testing into the NFT space and, um, mm. you know, looking at what consumers really want to sort of own a piece of and trade uh, as, an, as an investment into the future. So super exciting uh, brand and yes, going places for sure. So yeah, loving it. Yeah, I've, I've got so many questions, but we're running out of time. So we'll close with some rapid fire questions. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? Um, great question. Um, look, I think property has, you know, mm. in the UK, the first house that I bought, um, uh, which was in Brighton with, with the help of my dad, but he, he did a very clever thing where he said, I'll, I'll help you buy it, but when you sell it, I get 25%. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> um, he did that with all all his kids and lumbered us with mortgages. But, you know, it was actually a huge enabler for me to kind of get on the property ladder. And I think if you can have a sort of mid-term view with property and, you know, buy something that you know is going to be um, desirable in, in, in a few years to come and, and especially add value to it, um, it's, it's a great investment. So, yeah, that first house saw me through... Um, you know, paying off quite a lot of debt as a as a twenty something, and um, you know, at the time, enabled me to live and rent my rent the other rooms out to my friends and have a great place mm. to live. So I think, uh, and again, this is this is one of my dad's expressions, but um, he said the best bit of furniture you can ever buy is the bit that you put the other bits in. <laughs> Yeah, wow. That, that that when you actually think about it, like that is that is true. Like own it. Why why work in it when you can own it? Kind of thing. Is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Um, yeah. Look, I'm I'm quite keen at the moment to um to do the uh, sort of governance certification, so that you know I'd mm. love a few uh, in the future to be um on on the boards of companies. So yeah. um. That's certainly something that's in my sights and, uh, you know, really sort of looking forward to a future where I can kind of continue to work with growing companies, but, um, you know, mm. more than one perhaps. So, you know, not, not going back to agency, but like that board level mm. and actually uh, helping to nurture and support, um, you know, some, some growing technology companies. And, mm. uh, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be part of a, a, an investment group um, with the Stanford alumni, the exec program yeah. alumni. And uh, we're all getting together in Porto, in Portugal in September. And um, nice. the reaction group are, are getting together face to face for the first time. Um, and I can't wait to learn more about, um, you know, all of the companies that we've invested in so far and, and, and where the sort of future plans are for that. So um, it's always great to reunite with all the the Stanford crew that I met, um, mm. and just huge amounts of learning and uh, you know that that comes with that. So yeah, pretty excited about that later this year. And, and last one: Is there one quote or person that inspires you today? Um, I was thinking about this. <laughs> Uh, quotes. Uh, I'm. I, I. I am someone that remembers quotes. Um, you are welcome to rephrase. You don't have to know it by heart. So. <laughs> well, look. I mean, I. One, one. This is probably more of the kind of uh, spiritual side. Um, but I think the world is kind of needing to sort of connect to that uh, after the last couple of years. But um, Rumi 
quotes always stick with me and that, you know, you are not a drop in the ocean, you are the ocean in a drop. Mm. Um, and really, you know, we have the power within ourselves to kind of really do, um, you know, do what we want to do in the world and drive us forward um, and support those in our lives that need us. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to sort of reconnect to that to that power um i've struggled with it personally you know the last sort of couple of years and just you know being a new city being lonely and you know new job and lots of challenges and and our, our inner power is always there and we just got to learn to reconnect with it um and those days when we do we're kind of okay i've got this you know and the world is looking bright again um i'm lucky to be quite optimistic about about you know the future so but I just do have to reconnect with that sometimes. So yeah, I love that um, one. Yeah, such a good note to end on. I think one thing I've been doing on that is actually doing the yoga. I've been doing yoga every Friday for the last two months and and my girlfriend got me into it. But for a long time, I was like, no, I don't need yoga because I already go to the gym and I look after myself. But that's been a literal game changer in terms of just back to, as you say, center yourself and just switch off and not worry about the time or the speed you're running at or the weights you're lifting, but actually just go slow because there's not many things in life where you go slow. Exactly. You generally go fast. So yeah. completely agree. No, yoga, I'm a massive yoga fan. Yoga changed my life back in 2015 yeah. and, uh, yeah. you know, phone away, everything away, just, you know, out of the sort of monkey brain part of your head and just mm. into that kind of, you know, just the flow and, you know, it's so good for your body as well as your mind, isn't it? You just feel afterwards endorphins are just exploding, mm. you know, out of you. And and there's nothing I've done like yoga that uh, I really, my body really thanks me for it afterwards. It's like, mm. Well done, Kelly. Thanks for that. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, that's the finish line, Kelly. I'd love to keep talking. Maybe we can do a part two in the future, but thank you so much for joining me and, and wish you all the best. Thanks so much, Vidi. I've really enjoyed the conversation. There you have it. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and be 1% better. And to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, just subscribe or follow us on your podcast app and on LinkedIn or Instagram.